So I'm talking to the mortgage broker and all of a sudden, you know, I have the 5% down from my boyfriend, but then he's like, okay, you're going to have to bring like another 3% to the table. Well, that was several thousand dollars that I was like, where's this going to come from? And so then me and the boyfriend were kind of literally draining our emergency funds and our savings accounts, scraping this money together. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete, proven, step-by-step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Angela Zeigerbacher. Angela, are you ready to rock? Yes, I am, Andrew. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to call you Angie since I hear you say Angie on the podcast that you do. But let me introduce you to the audience. Angie has always been interested in the personal finance realm from hoarding cash in her sock drawer as a kid to paying off her student loan debt in one year after college. After countless conversations with friends, she realized not everyone had the same level of personal finance education, which prompted her to launch Money in the Bank podcast, a personal finance podcast for the average Joe or Jane. On top of this, she has taught personal finance to teenagers in high school, as well as hosted Lunch and Learns at several companies. Angie, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Thanks, Andrew. So yeah, as well as all of that, I actually also got into real estate about four years ago when I bought my first investment property. So I've kind of been interested in all types of personal finance as well as investing. So I was really excited when you asked me to be on the show so I can kind of talk through my worst investment ever, as embarrassing as it is. Yes. Well, it's nice that you have your worst investment at a relatively young age. Mine came at a later age and it made it even more painful. (laughs) Yeah. But, But I guess at any point in time when we ask someone, what was your worst investment? All you got is what you got so far. Hopefully this will be the worst investment of your life because you're going to walk through it and share what you learned from it. And that's valuable. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right, Andrew, thanks. So yeah, when I kind of started this, as you mentioned, I had just gotten done paying off my student loan debt within a year after college. And After that experience, you kind of feel like you're on top of the world. You think, if I paid off my student loan debt that fast, obviously I'm doing a lot of things right. I was 22. You can't really tell a 22-year-old that they're doing anything wrong in life because they just don't listen to you. And the other interesting thing, though, is nobody really talks to you about what you should do once you pay off your debt. I think a lot of times when people pay off their debt, they're a little bit older. So I had no other debt on my books. And... So, you know, when you're a little bit older, people say, well, ramp up your retirement savings or ramp up your investments. But when you're 21, people, at least all my friends around me, I mean, they were just like, that's amazing that your student loans are paid off. You should obviously just treat yourself. You know, you should go on nice vacations and you should buy things you really want. And so, 
you know, I, I had never really been a spendy person, so I didn't take that completely to heart, but I started thinking about it and I thought, well, what do I want? And I wanted a new car because I had been driving the same two-door car since I was 16 and I lived in a super snowy climate, so it, it wasn't very good in the snow. And then I thought, you know, everyone tells me that renting is throwing money out the window. And even my parents were saying like, yeah, if you can buy a house, you should buy a house. And so I kind of took that to heart and I was like, okay, I'm going to get a new car and I'm going to get a new house. So I kind of look at it this as I was trying to buy the American dream. And the American dream is really having that house and having, you know, I was with a boyfriend at the time and it's having those two cars in the garage and that white picket fence, you know, that's what I was after. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy a new car. And, you know, I was making a huge financial decision and I wasn't putting that much thought behind it. I just thought I need a new car. I need something good in the snow. And so when I started looking at these small crossover SUVs, I thought, oh, this is perfect. And I didn't make that list of like, what am I looking for in a car? Because if I had, it would have been something good in the snow, sure, but also something that gets good gas mileage and something that's going to last me for a long time and probably not something brand new, honestly. Like in hindsight, I would have bought a used car with low miles that would have been a great fit for me. But instead, I went and I bought a brand new Ford Escape for $35,000. And as soon as I drove it off the lot, I'm sure it was only worth like 30000 So now I had I had just finished off paying off my student loan debt of $20,000, and now I had another $20,000 loan balance. And so I thought, here I go again. And so, you know, for me, that was somewhat motivating because I was like, well, now I know what to do. I just pay this off as fast as I can. So I got about six months into paying off my car when our lease was coming up. And my boyfriend and I knew that we were going to stay together. But our lease was going to go up $250 a month, which was a huge sticker shock to us. So now this idea in the back of my mind of rent is just throwing away money increases because our rent is increasing by a pretty large amount at the time. So I was like, well, what are some of my friends doing? They're looking at buying houses. And so we were like, yeah, we should totally buy a house together. That is totally the right thing to do, even though we're just dating right now. <laughs> and so you know, and I had just put all this money into a car, so I hadn't saved up a down payment. My boyfriend did have a bit more of a down payment, but we decided to go in and buy a house together, and the house is going to be in my name, and he was going to gift me the 5% down, which just sounds so stupid in hindsight. And so, you know, we, we found this house, and I will say the one thing we did right at least was I bought a house that I could afford on my salary alone so that if anything and I happened between the boyfriend and I, I could at least afford this house on my own. But what we did wrong was, one, we didn't think about closing costs. So I'm talking to the mortgage broker and all of a sudden, you know, I have the 5% down from my boyfriend, but then he's like, okay, you're going to have to bring like another 3% to the table. Well, that was several thousand dollars that I was like, where's this going to come from? And so then me and the boyfriend were kind of literally draining our emergency funds and our savings accounts, scraping this money together. And, you know, since then, I've purchased several rental properties and more personal residence. 
things can always break when you buy a house. So going in with no maintenance fund is a really bad idea. And we honestly just got really lucky that nothing broke that first year for us. And so, yeah, I went, I went in and we bought this house. And even then in hindsight, we realized we bought the house that we could afford, but we didn't spend enough time looking because we were under the gun with, you know, our rent was going to go up. We couldn't stay there. And so we ended up just quick buying in this location. And after living there for, you know, even just a year, we were like, what did we do? It takes us 20 minutes to drive ever anywhere. And I was 20 minutes away from work and it just wasn't the house. We just hated it. Honestly, it was like, there was no insulation in our bedroom. So it was freezing in the winter and our bill. So our bills were super high. And I think that's another thing that people don't realize when you buy a house is it's not just the mortgage. Sure, that's an equation, but you're on the hook for the maintenance. You're on the hook for heating and cooling it, which honestly, because it was such a bigger space and a single family home and you're not sharing walls, your utilities go up quite a bit. I mean, we went from paying about $50 a month in an apartment for you know, heating, cooling, and all of that to about $200 a month. And so that's a big difference there alone. And then another sneaky thing that a lot of people don't tell you about is property taxes, and they can be quite expensive. So we were paying about $350 a month in property taxes, as well as because I only put 5% down, I had a PMI of about $100 a month as well. So in hindsight, even though I thought renting was throwing all this money out the window, we could have rented a two bedroom, which would have been more than enough for our needs at the time, for probably about $875 a month. And with everything all in in this house, our payments were more like $1,400 a month. So that's a big difference. And so even though I was building principal, by the time you factor in closing costs, I actually ran all the numbers here. So Mm -hmm. by the time you factor in closing costs, even though I made about $19,000 worth of principal while I lived there for three years, it still cost me in total $30,000 because closing costs on both ends were that high, plus the difference in owning versus renting, like I quoted those those big gaps, as well as home maintenance. Because even though we got lucky that first year and nothing broke, our luck didn't hold out and we had to fix the furnace at one point. So all these things matter. And then as far as the car goes, when we moved, we moved closer to work and I could actually bike to work. And so I sold that later as well. And when I sold it, it only had 30,000 miles on it after about five years, but I depreciated over $20,000. So the total cost of both of those mistakes were about $50,000. Ouch. Yeah. And that's it was a really lot painful. Money. Was, it was really painful when I was putting this together. Yeah. Yeah, but that is the benefit of this show is it kind of helps us to look back and, and piece it together and force us to kind of walk through it. So I'm just curious. I'm going to ask you the next question about the lessons that you've learned. But before I do that, Maybe you could just give us an update about kind of what your life looks like now as far as home ownership, renting, car, the way you look at those things differently. Yeah, so I actually ended up relocating to Chicago. And here we did end up buying again. We were actually going to rent, but we realized here that our money did go a lot further if we bought. 
But instead of buying anything crazy, we bought a two bedroom condo that's about 800 square feet. So it fits our needs a lot better. You know, I work from home, so we did want that extra bedroom and everything. But we didn't need to go into this four bedroom place. And we actually have stayed a one car family, which has a ton of benefits in terms of reducing costs, especially when you live in a city. I mean, renting an extra parking spot here would be $200 a month. So getting rid of that car is something that I've never regretted. Yeah, and you get to spend a little bit more time together because you got to sometimes pick each other up. (laughs) Yeah, but it hasn't been too bad. You know, bikes are a wonderful invention as well. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, why don't you tell us about the lessons that you learned from this experience? Yeah, so I really learned that I shouldn't listen to what others or society thinks that your life should look like. Having that car and having that house, it makes you look really successful when you're 22 years old. But ultimately, that wasn't what was best for me. And so I think learning that designing my life the way that I want to live it and just being really happy and intentional about how I choose to live not only makes me happier, but then it also gives me you know, it gives me that money to invest in other things, things that I'm passionate about or things that I want to really do with my time, like travel more. That's a huge lesson. And um, maybe what I'll do is I'll summarize kind of some of my takeaways from this. The first one, uh, I want to, to direct the listeners to episode 83 with Josiah Smelzer. And that was him buying a house in my worst investment ever. And he talked about not doing the research before he bought the house and not getting an inspection in his case. And, you know, I think my first takeaway from this is, you know, the most common mistake that people make is that they fail to do their own research. And, you know, in some ways, you know, you're a pretty thorough person, but what you've shown in this is that there was a lot of things that kind of came out that you didn't realize were going to be, you know, you're going to have to spend on. So I think my first lesson that I take away from it is the idea of write it down, take the time. One idea that could have helped maybe in this situation is find a comparable house that's for sale and try to compare the two. And by doing that, you force yourself to have to ask the question, okay, what would maintenance be here? What would this, you know, the questions that you may not be sure to ask, you know, you could, you could ask. The second lesson that I take away from it, and this is a, you, you know, you said at, at the start that it's hard to tell a 21-year-old a or a 22-year-old or a young person, you know, what to do. But, you know, I implore all young people listening to this, talk to your parents when it comes to buying a house. They know all the expenses. They know all the trouble, you know, that comes with that. And then you'll, you'll realize why your, why your mother always said, you know, don't pull on those blinds. Get your hands off the wall. She doesn't want to spend on painting that wall. Right? <laughs> and then uh, the last thing that I take away is the idea of kind of keeping up with the Joneses and what you mentioned, you know, about kind of living the American dream. And you just thought that that's what people do. But I think that, you know, your main lesson is, you know, for the listeners out there, don't listen to other people. Don't follow the dream of other people. And just because it appears that this is, you know, everybody's doing it doesn't mean that they're making right decisions, you know. And also, I would, I would argue that, you know, be brave, be willing to say, I don't have to do what other people do. And for me, I rent at my age right now. And I still rent because 
I found, you know, a pretty low cost place that I live in and I like it. I don't have to worry about any maintenance, anything like that. If anything goes bad, I just call the manager and they're up here in a minute, they're fixing it and I don't have to worry about that. And those maintenance costs and all the other costs associated with owning, you know, I don't want. And the truth is, is that, you know, let's say the US stock market as an example has grown on average between maybe eight and 12% over the last 50 years. I believe that the stock markets, you know, globally provide a great opportunity for someone to just buy like an ETF of every stock in the world, own that, and you're probably going to earn, let's just be conservative and say, you're going to get a return of 6% per year for the next 10 years or 20 years on that. It's very hard to get a home purchase that would beat that over the long run because all of the costs involved in maintaining a home, you know, is pretty massive. And so I think that, you know, you should look at a young age of, you know, starting to invest in the stock market rather than putting that money into a house. So those are some of my takeaways. Is there anything that you'd add to that? I would also add that now that I've gotten into property management as well, when I look at buying a rental property versus buying a personal home, one is an investment and one is not. And I think when I was younger, I thought that buying my own home was an investment as well. But it's not. If you're not cash flowing on it and you're not getting returns, it's, it's really not. And even there are some people who have had major luck with the buy and hold model of their personal homes, but that really is kind of like winning the lottery. So, you know, think of it as it's your home, it's your place to live, but don't buy it thinking that you need to, for sure. <laughs> It's interesting that you say that because I think one of the arguments that people say of why you should buy, not rent, is because you're building up home equity. And what people say, you know, ultimately, that's like, that's your investment. But when you say that, you know, what you realize is that what you're doing is you're forcing yourself. It's like a forced savings account with zero interest. You know, right. you are forcing yourself to save every month because you're, you're putting money into this, but you know, you're, you're paying money on your loan, you're paying money for maintenance, you're paying money for all of these other things. Now you are avoiding a monthly rental cost. So we have to kind of look at it relative to the rental cost that you pay. But in the end, I suppose on average, you know, it is really a saving, a forced savings account is the way to look at it, not as an investment account. And if you just put your money in the bank, and you got almost no interest on it, even though you'd, you would save up money over time, you'd never ever get where you need to get as far as you know, building your wealth because without any interest or with only a tiny amount of interest, it's not enough to get where you need to go. Absolutely, and I think the other hard thing about equity, and I kind of touched on this as well, it, saying that we drained our savings account and why that was such a bad idea with having to have, you know, you need maintenance funds and you need an emergency fund. And when you don't have these things, even though you, it's a forced savings account, it's really hard to access that money without doing, without getting a refinance, which means you have to be, you know, in good credit standing and all of that stuff. And otherwise, the only way to access that is when you sell it. And I mean, also you can sell it and make money, but you can sell it and lose money too. I mean, the housing bubble has burst before and not to scare people. It's not like that's always going to happen, but you can't guarantee that it's easy to get out. It's not very liquid, right? Like a savings account. That's why you accept lower return on a savings account is your money's very liquid. You can get your hands on it if you need to, but you can't with home equity. Mm. And one last thing that you remind me of is that 
you know, when you've put everything that you have into this home and you, you've depleted your, any savings that you may have had, you have maybe one or two or three years of being very vulnerable. And the vulnerability, you know, if something went wrong in one way or another with your house, with your health, with your family, with a cousin, you know, you would have no ability to really handle that situation. So that period of vulnerability, you know, is you seem like you're a pretty disciplined person and you got yourself out of that period of vulnerability pretty quickly, but not everybody can get themselves out of that that quickly. And so I think that's another thing to highlight is that, you know, if you're going into this and you're stretching yourself really beyond your means, you're also running a lot of other risks. So that's the last thing from my side. Man, there's a lot of lessons from this, Angie. <laughs> yeah, at least hopefully my mistake can help others. Well, and that really brings us to the next question, which is based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn. I love the idea that you've talked about the difference between buying and renting, that you understand that more now. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And that listener, I just want to remind you, is just about to sign on the line to do exactly what you did. What one piece of advice would you give them? Don't rush big financial decisions. Take your time, think about it, do your research, do your homework, and make sure you're really excited about what you're committing to do. Because when you buy a house, the goal isn't to sell it in three years like I did. If you buy a house, the goal is to stay in it for typically five to 10 years at least, they say. So just don't rush it. Take your time, take a deep breath, and you know, ask for more opinions from people around you if you just need to talk it out with somebody. Great advice. So ladies and gentlemen, if you're just about to sign on the line, I would add to that, stop, <laughs> step back and do exactly what Angie has just said, which is to take your time. Don't let anybody or anything rush you. Don't let any societal pressure, you know, pressure you. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? So my number one goal is actually kind of interesting. So at this point, my savings are pretty automated. Financially, I feel pretty good. So I've actually been started work. I've started working on a YouTube channel called Fugality, where I cook and I bake frugal type meals. And so my goal for the next year is to focus more on that, to pick up some more editing skills so my videos get better as I go. And I also want to work on releasing a frugally minded cookbook in the next year. That's awesome. So how do we, how do you spell that? So that the audience, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but if somebody wants to go watch that, so what should they F search for? Yeah. So Fugality, F-O-O-G-A-L-I-T-Y. And you'll find us on YouTube. We're the only ones crazy enough to have that name. <laughs> nice. Nice. And one of the things that's very interesting, I moved to Thailand when I was 26 years old. And so I've been here more than half my life. One of the things that's very interesting, it's, it's cheaper to eat out in Thailand than to eat at home. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, it's like flips it on the head. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, a fancy restaurant, but the food that's on the street, on the stalls on the street, is great food made by, you know, fantastic, the men and women of this city that get up at four in the morning to prepare themselves to get their food out on the streets are pretty amazing. I've got to you know, know the ones that live and that work around, let's say, the area that I live in. But the thing about it is that you, know, you can pick up some food on the way home at a cheaper price than if you had to go buy it, bring it, cook it, do all of that. And so, yeah, it just, I never thought about that 
and when I was in America. But yeah, that's an interesting little thing here in Thailand. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit my worst investment ever. As we end, Angie, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? My last parting words would be, don't let sunk cost fallacy keep you in a bad financial situation. So it was hard to sell my car after there was so much depreciation, but it was far better than holding on to a mistake. Fantastic. And ladies and gentlemen, the sunk cost fallacy, a very important fallacy. One way to counter that fallacy is to tell yourself, if I did not own this thing today, would I buy it? Or if I own it, you know, would I sell it? And this types of questions that we call zero-based thinking tries to get you to the point where you've disassociated yourself with what you've done in the past. And it's a great tool to help. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help you create, grow, and most importantly, protect your well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.